welcome to the 15th episode of Talking Ozpol, everybody. And how are you going this morning? Yeah, pretty good. Pretty good. I got a house to myself, no kids at the moment, so uh, it's nice and quiet. <laughs> oh, that's good, at least. Uh, I'm glad somebody's happy, personally. I feel like I've aged 10 years or so in the last fortnight. Um, yeah, you know. Had a three and a half thousand dollar dentist bill. Had my faith in the Victorian Greens rocked. Um, and uh, there's a new guy at work whose mission seems to be undoing every single thing I do. So it's been great. <laughs> what was more fun though, the the Vic Greens disappointment or the dentist? Probably the dentist, to be honest. The dentist was like a forty minute trip with a lot of blood, um, whereas like state conference was. Just a you know seven hour kick in the guts, so yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at with that. <laughs> um, we might move into our first topic, which is that today, not today, but this week, Jim Chalmers flagged that repealing the stage three tax cuts may be on the cards in some form. Um, they, he seemed, in my opinion, please feel free to correct me, to hint more at tinkering with the stage three ca- tax cuts, but keeping them in some form so that they can claim they haven't broken their promise. Uh, what are your thoughts, Ender? Yeah, I would agree. Um, I think the that new bracket they've created, there's a lot of people in that that will have switched their vote or could switch their vote um, to Labor. So pissing them off with a tax hike is probably not the best strategy so early on. Um, but I think the real problem is the in moving the bracket up and reducing the overall um, amount of tax that someone on 200000 or more has to earn, you are giving a bit back to the pockets of people who don't actually need it right now and who don't need it long term. So it, it'll be unpopular that way. Um, as for tinkering, I think there's a risk in that. I mean, I think he's definitely hinting at it, but I think they may, they may bulk depending on how much um, they're required to to make concessions to the crossbench on any other forms of tax reform that might come into it because, yeah, it's been legislated now, therefore you're talking about amending an existing bill. So it could get a bit mm. tricky for them. That's true. But on your point about it being, you know, maybe not the wisest thing to piss off a bunch of those voters right now at the start, is it not actually the best time to do that? Because they have another two years afterwards to essentially build that goodwill up. Um, I would argue it probably be a bit of a worst um, scenario if they did something closer to the election. Yeah, I think I think it depends on when they want to take their medicine on it and whether they calculate that the, um, I guess the broad unpopularity of the tax cuts is is squarely aimed at all of them or aimed at the fact that the all of the sliding adjustments mean that the um, top percentile top quintile of earners are going to pay less tax. So. Um, there's probably a lot of polling going on to work out just how painful each of the options of, of change would be. Because um, the the thing I think they, they probably went into the election feeling they needed to do was blunt every Liberal line of attack and just keep their head down and let the Liberals implode, which is exactly what happened. But one of the areas they probably felt vulnerable on was the idea that, that Labor is all about big taxes and taxing people out of their income. So um, I feel they probably backed the stage three cuts on that on that front and they're working out the damage to the brand of, of having to walk back from that. Um, Cause intuitively it seems like, why wouldn't you just junk these now? They're, they're unpopular. They don't really do much. They create more holes in the budget than they, um, 
than they would fix. There's no real upside I can see to them, um, except for the fact they personally will get a bit of money in their pocket as a result. Hmm. Um, I forget. I'm more. I've already forgotten his name. There was a Labour backbencher that recently came out in support of them. You know, who no one had ever really heard of before. I doubt his local constituents even knew his name. Um, but he came out and was like, "Earning 200k isn't a lot of money. Like, guys, I'm doing it tough." Um, which <laughs> but didn't Albo say that? Oh, Albo said that in 20, uh, 2019. He said something along the lines of, "I don't think people earning." up to and around 200 going to the uh, the top end of town. Um, I mean, look, at the moment, with inflation being what it is and um, Australia being so leveraged to the hilt, it's probably the case that uh, that, that sort of salary range is a lot less comfortable than it historically used to be, but not to the point that it needs tax cuts, right? Like, we're not really yeah. seeing people struggle. I think that there's, there's a degree of people doing okay. You know, if they're on 200 grand, their, their life could be worse. Yeah, you don't have people on two hundred grand, you know, calling up like Vinny's being like, Hey, um, like my pay packet didn't go through this week. What what assistance do you offer? Um Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh I, I really think these tax cuts are going to be a persistent problem, especially if they continue to exist in the October budget, which we will get to in just a moment. Um like it really just opens Labor up from, like, the left side, really. Let's be honest, you know, the Greens can completely attack them on this because they are sort of indefensible indefensible in the sense besides, oh, it was an election promise and we can't break that. Um, There's very little economic reasoning for it, you know, that I can see, I think that you said you can see as well. Um and it's not like it's going to stop Peter Dutton at the next election going, Labor's going to tax you into the ground. Like, that that's the attack that always happens, whether it's true or not. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think there's a an element where what they've tried to do, and I don't think they've been successful on it, but they've, they've looked at people who are, I guess, above the means test for a lot of subsidies, like the childcare subsidy, and gone, well, if we give you more money back in your pocket, um, then we're compensating for the fact you're not getting that kind of middle-class welfare that you're used to. To my mind, rather than putting a multi-billion dollar hole in the budget, there are easy ways to resolve that problem. Like, I don't know, raising the means test on the <clears throat> the childcare subsidy, if that's what you're worried about. So the, the economics behind it had some merit at some point, but the, the execution leaves so much to be desired. I think that's my overall kind of feeling about the whole thing is um, you had an easy target to hit. You missed it. Potentially, I think Morrison might have been entertaining the idea of um, buffing the GST up as a means of compensating the the revenue hit that the tax cuts would take. But that's not an answer either. I guess GST is not revenue neutral. Like it's, it's more of a tax on real wages. So any mm-hmm. tax cuts that, that would be Benefiting people, say, 120 to 180K, would then be borne by people on lower incomes, which is the antithesis of a progressive tax system. Yeah, definitely. Um, Another thing that I think is probably kind of worth acknowledging is just some of the messaging around this. Um, Because tinkering with these stationary tax cuts will not limit their popularity, like will will not help in the sense that, um, I don't know, Last week, um, Adam Bent, you know, was like, Clive Farmer shouldn't be getting a $9,000 tax cut this year. And then when Chalmers uh, started with the tinkering line, it was like, we shouldn't be deciding whether or not Clive Farmer gets a $9,000 or an $8,000 tax cut this year. 
Um, you know, like, like it really just didn't do anything. I think. Um, yeah, I don't know. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I, I think there's an element of trying to salvage the political benefits of um, targeting kind of the second, third, and fourth quintiles in the um, in income bands and trying to make Labor the party of that kind of slice of middle Australiana that, that um, would give it future electoral success. Um, but the problem is, and I kind of embarrassingly cock these calcs up a bit, but when they've created this mega bracket of 45 to 200,000 and dropped the tax rate from 325 to 30%, it means that when you start calculating the top end, you're working out 30% tax across that 45 to 200k range. So you're not only um, making them pay less tax before they even get to to the 45%, you're giving them that little shot in the arm that they don't need. So even if you were to go and um, tinker a bit and bring that that um, bracket down from 45 to 180k, so 200k, you're still giving the upper end of tax cut as a result. So I I think ultimately, whatever some they lead to, they can't avoid the fact that Clive Palmer gets a tax cut. And that's mm-hmm. where I think the problem's going to come into it. But then in being a bit obstinate about it, there's going to be an element where, you know, I, I want to take credit for this. I don't want the Greens to be the ones to say that they were the ones who pushed a repeal of the tax cuts through. Or I don't want them to take get the political credit for it. And so it's going to be a little bit of a pretzel-shaped knot they tie themselves into just to to justify walking back tax cuts and not giving credit to a thorn in their side politically. Mm. Yeah, we might, on the same subject essentially, but we might move on to the next topic of the October budget is going to be a thing soon. Hooray. Who's looking forward to budget night? I mean, I am, but I don't think I should admit that in public. (laughs) Um, I, I, I think it's... I don't think it's unfair to say that Labor um, have inherited a bit of a bleak economic outlook. Um, it seems like on the day after election day, uh, everyone was suddenly like, oh, oh no, we may have another GFC on our hands soon. Um, good luck, everyone. Uh, so, yeah. What, what, do you have any thoughts on the upcoming budget um, and how it's going to go? And what, what's Labor's approach to it going to be? It's tough because you're right. Like the 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 problem we have now is like the main lever of fiscal policy isn't cooling inflation the way it should, and so any spending government does has a risk of making inflation worse. And this was one of the problems that um, got Frank Crean and Gough Whitlam into trouble was you had inflation, you had stagflation, they kept spending and it made it worse. So Chalmers is going to be in this position where to establish his, his economic credentials. He's going to have to deliver a budget that's not going to make inflation worse, whilst also dealing to cost of living problems, which is going to be not impossible to pull the balancing act off correctly. And it's probably going to end up feeling a little bit of a, um, a pinch budget, a little bit of a kick in the shins to some people who are expecting, I think, a lot more subsidies and relief than they're going to actually get. Um, mm-hmm. So I think they're going to have a, a focus on on making sure that long term we don't we sort of emerge from whatever's coming in the strongest possible state, and that might mean some short term pain. Um, but for people who are doing it tough now, they're already in short term pain. They're going to argue that they haven't got a lot of room left in the tank to to suck up any more problems and and sort of dig deep and find a way to get through the issues they're getting through now. So I think it's going to be a test of their 
their strength politically. It's going to be a test of um, Chalmers credentials economically. It's also going to be a test of the country's patience. Um, and I, for one, you couldn't pay me enough money to be in Jim Chalmers shoes right now. <laughs> um, let me let me phrase it like this, actually. So Jim Chalmers has often cited Paul Keating as being kind of uh, the legacy that he looks up to. He wants to be um, the next Paul Keating for Australia. Um, in the current economic outlook, after 10 years of Liberal government, do you think the Australian people are looking for a Paul Keating budget? That's a really good question. I hadn't thought of that before. Um, I think they may not be looking for it, but I think it's probably what they need. Because apart from a few attempts to get it more seriously right under um, Turnbull, and I guess Turnbull was the first person to break the back of the idea that we've got to cut spending on everything in order to get into surplus. What we've had are budgets from um, Tony Abbott that just punched aggressively down, from Morrison that spent irresponsibly. We haven't had a, really, a budget that was trying to strike the right balance between responsibility and the like responsibility of the future generations, responsibility of the present generations. So we may want a more whitlam s budget now because of the cost of living, but we may need a more Keating-esque budget. And that's my non-committal political answer for you. <laughs> uh, you should go into politics, Xander. No, don't. No, please don't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I really think talking about cost of living is going to be their sore point um, because it could be argued that a large part of Labor's brand is acknowledging uh, the inequalities in our society and promising to fix them, you know? Like, they they like to talk about, you know, um, Whitlam and all of his reforms and things like that. Um, it's But we're not going to be getting those kind of policies. Like, like I think those are just off the table. Like, do you, do you see um, dental being put into Medicare uh, being included in this budget? Do you even... Even in the smaller scale, in a sense, uh, it's become noted that, especially in a lot of rural areas, there's now that gap for going to the doctors, like just visiting a GP now that the people have to pay and it's starting to hurt. Um, I know my local GP now has like a $15 fee and it's expected to go up. Um, do we see any movement on like that, you know, in terms of Medicaid covering that cost? Because that's been frozen for a while. What do you think? I think this is probably not the budget they'll do it in. I think it's something they'll put into forward estimates to say it's it's on the table, we want to look at it, but but right now we need to tighten the belt a little bit. Um, I mean, there's no real good reason why dental wouldn't be on Medicare, and we're very lucky, I guess, in a lot of states we've got um, pretty good dental hygiene relative to other Western countries because of the um, <clears throat> fluoride in the water, et cetera, but it's not it's obviously <laughs> not universal um, and it makes us more susceptible to 5G waves in our brains, obviously. But um, I think there's no real reason not to, except for the fact that they're going to be having to reconcile um, mm -hmm. a tax cut that takes billions out of the, uh, the tax base and trying to spend something that's going to cost them probably in the order of billions to include as well. So, um, you know, as you, as you saw, dental is not cheap. Um, no. and, and so this is, this is going to be the balancing act they got to strike. And, and if I was in Chalmers position, I'd probably be also saying, um, it's on the agenda, it's going to happen, but it probably won't happen until say the 2024, 20, 2025 20, budget. Once we've dealt with 
some of these more immediate cost of living issues. Perhaps. I feel like this thing's been on the, you know, it's been on the horizon since Whitlam and Medicare became a thing. Um, so I'll believe it when I actually see it. Um, just just as a side note, into my first experience uh, getting dental work properly, um, I had to get private health extras covered because I knew I wouldn't be able to afford it in any capacity otherwise. And it, oh boy, it was just a terrible, terrible experience. I am so fucking glad we have Medicare. Like I, I called up around 40 different dentist offer, um, offices, comparing their prices, checking if they were an approved provider through my insurance. It was no. I do not want to be doing that if I'm having a heart attack. No, and, and health insurance is one of those things where if you scale it back to before all the budget incentives were introduced to get people into private health care, it was it's a fairly sensible option to have that, that um, ability for people who can pay their own way to take relief out of the public system. But it's become so ridiculously wild west as an industry that everyone has it. Therefore, you've got, and sorry, I work in insurance, I'm going to get a bit nerdy here, but you've got a lot of anti-selection risk in the pool, which means like they can't filter out um, healthier from non-healthier customers all the time. So the premiums go up, you're paying a lot for this service. It doesn't do what you expect it to do in a lot of cases. So you might have dental cover, but it'll only cover a routine checkup. It won't cover um, crowns or caps or, or cavities or anything like that. So you're paying mm -hmm. a lot for a service you don't really think you get a lot out of. And no one understands why. No one knows why it's gotten to... Well, we know why it's gotten to this point. But if you stop and think about it, you're like, why am I doing this shit? Um, yeah. And my, my current plan for it is essentially to have it for two years. Uh, so I have... And I, I spoke with my dentist now about this. Uh, I've got the 12-month waiting period. Going to finish that. Then I'm going to have some dental stuff that I need is done because I have a 12-month waiting period for that. And then once that's done... I'll be able to just cancel it and not look at it again, which is my current plan. Yeah, pro probably not the worst idea. Um, I mean, I've got it because I've got kids, and so you obviously want to have every protection possible. But it, it needs having been this is sorry, this is horribly off topic, but having been through the Hain Royal Commission and all of the um, reforms that came into the insurance sector, particularly the life insurance sector where I used to work, it's possible to regulate these industries into being. Um, customer value focused and, and delivering outcomes that matter to the people who take out these products. I think the fear of the health insurance reform is really rooted in the idea that if we push too hard, then the costs go up for the government. And that may be the case. But if the product is good enough, people will buy it. They won't buy it because they're compelled to or because they get a tiny bit of relief on their tax return. They'll buy health insurance if it's worth it. So reform of that sector should be a priority for them as well. It won't be because there's, you know, potentially a recession coming, but I'd love to see them fix that so that health insurance didn't become a dirty word and didn't become an expensive item that you don't really need as much as you think you do. Sorry, I rant know. over. That's fine. I just, I don't think they'll ever be able to do that, to be honest. Um, I think the Americanization of our popular culture shows how terrible... Uh, private health insurance is when it's allowed to run rampant um, and I don't think anyone wants to replicate that here like no matter what kind of work they actually do to the industry there'll always be that thing ahead where it's like but I've got my Medicare card and I don't want to be like America 
Oh, I completely, yeah. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. What, what I, in ideal world, health insurance should exist as a nice to have, not a need to have. And it should exist for people to say, you know what, for non-elective surgeries, um, I'm happy to pay extra to go in a bit earlier. And that way that I'm taking the burden on myself and the government's not. And it, it becomes part of that kind of the, the same idea as progressive tax, the people who can contribute more do, um, mm -hmm. and they take the burden off those who can't afford to. And that's, I don't understand why we've abandoned that as a fundamental principle. It should be a core piece of Liberal Party identity, much less Labor Party identity, because that's the the sets of values both of them were founded on. Um, we've obviously come a long way from that now, he says, looking at Peter Dutton. Um, but yeah, <laughs> fundamentally, that's what I would see, like the ideal outcome being. Your Medicare card everyone has, you have your private health on top of that if you can afford to, but not because you're being bullied into it on at tax return time. Yeah. Um, we might move into our third topic, uh, which is religious freedom. It is not controversial in the slightest. Um, but for those of you who weren't paying attention, it kind of spluttered into life again uh, this week after the Essendon C, I believe he was the CEO, resigned yes. something like 30 hours after he started because of his links to a church that's quite homophobic. I believe in that. Like, so, you know, where, where's my religious rights not to be fired from this job? What are your thoughts, Ender? Um, I'm sort of sympathetic to the idea that religions that have, for the last however many years, been quite consistent in their beliefs, be allowed to sort of continue with those beliefs, provided they don't go out of their way to start attacking people outside of their sphere, I guess outside of their church. Um, but I don't think this is really religious freedom issue i think it's an issue of he was appointed to he has one set of values from his his personal life he was appointed to an organization with another set of values and those two values don't line up and it's that classic thing mm -hmm. that came out of the u.s around you know am i obligated to make cakes for a gay wedding if i'm um strictly christian and don't believe homosexual i believe homosexuality is a sin no you're not but you're also entitled to wear the consequences of people not giving you their business right it's a it's a two-way street the freedom to believe things religiously means you can't have it legislated against you but if your organization doesn't agree with you and doesn't want you in that position because of those beliefs i don't think it's fair to cry victimhood status um dare i say they want their cake and eat it too i mean only if it's made by, you know, wholesome religious bakers. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> I think another thing to consider with this is that it is, in some ways, a public role. Like, the CEO is representing the club publicly, which is why it caused such a storm to begin with. Um, and so you can't... Like, like if, if that company decides we don't want a person with that value representing our company publicly, then... Like, what is there to really do about that? I think the the issue is more the inverse, which is that they'll sort of say, okay, that's fine, but if we don't want people who are from LGBTQI plus backgrounds in our church, that people then kind of get upset about it. And I, I think it does have to be a two-way street, right? If, if it's not like, I mean, historically, the reason we are, grappling with um, legislation that's been broadly homophobic for so long is because of Judeo-Christian values. Prior to Christianity becoming the dominant religion, there was no real taboo around hetero-homosexual acts, right? Like, famous people like Caesar were engaged in 
in same-sex love affairs as well as love affairs with women. It was it was completely normal. The 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 kind of anti-gay stance that's been popular, I guess, over two thousand years in in Judeo-Christian thought is just that. It is it is a, a localized set of beliefs. So they've been very upfront, I think, over over time that that's their belief set. I'm happy for them to have it. I don't indulge in religion, so it doesn't really affect me. But I, I kind of feel like, okay, if you want to protect that, yes, you should be allowed to, to have that protected culturally, but you've got to deal with the consequences of a society that doesn't agree with it, and that's got to be two-way. Um, mm-hmm. So I think Thornton getting stood down is is appropriate, but I also think um, if a church does not want to accept gay members, it's not like they've been hiding this for a long period of time. It should be pretty open. And there are a lot of great churches like the Uniting Church, which are progressive and inclusive. If religion is your thing and you want to be spiritually engaged there are alternatives out there now that may be easy for me to say as a as an atheist because i don't know the the difference in what people get out of certain traditions and sex but it sort of seems to me like there's there's problems that don't need to be solved there i'm sorry i just had a either terrible or great i'm not sure yet mental image where i'm calling up 40 odd uh churches asking what services they provide (laughs) and which one i should go for my private religious insurance um let the market decide how you engage with Jesus. I think it's fair. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I might write a little short. But I think I think that. we do need to get. I think as a society, and this is probably across everyone, we do need to get a little bit more tolerant to the ideas that people have different belief sets, and we don't have to agree with everything they believe. Like I have had issues with religion for a long time, but I'm okay with the idea that. I don't need to sit there nailing proclamations to their door for them to agree with what I what I believe in the same way I don't need them to tell me what I should believe. And I and pluralism and sort of secularism relies on the fact there is that that broad minded acceptance that lots of people have different beliefs. Um mm. we just leave them to it, we don't indulge if we don't agree. Yeah. Um before we wrap up with this topic, I might ask, do you think this will renew the push for religious freedom legislation to be put through? I believe the Labor government was somewhat committed to it, but it's kind of let it go onto the back burner at this point. Um, yeah, do, do you see this reigniting a push? I mean, it feels like it's been a bit more of a muted response to this than it was when, when the Liberals were pushing it. Um, and I can't see that right now there's a huge appetite in the community for this to be legislated for. So no, I don't really think so. And I think they've, they've got that beautiful get out of jail free card, which is there are bigger problems at the moment on the agenda. Let's, let's focus on, on those, you know, the, the um, impending recession, housing, etc. Like there's a lot on the plate. Religious freedom is probably a bit of an indulgence at this point. Um, Although I just realised that it could sound like a pro-Catholic statement. So that, that's a terrible <laughs> sentence. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Well, on that note, we may move into our last topic for today. Um, I'm, I'm sure you have a few thoughts on this, Ender. Uh, but the Greens at the federal level have proposed a rent freeze. Um, you have five minutes for your rant. Go. <laughs> I, I've, I've ranted a lot about this. Um, Look, I, I get the emotional appeal of a rent freeze um, because it does, on paper, provide the idea of, of equity for renters. But um, the, the issue is every time rent control has been tried in any form, 
it's resulted in materially worse outcomes for the people who it's meant to protect. And so um, Berlin's just done it recently. They, they introduced rent control there and within a year, 50% of rental stocks are dried up because it just creates all sorts of bad incentives in the market. We have a massive problem right now with housing shortage and we have done for, for 20 years and we've done two fifths of fuck all about it. We need desperately to get building houses. We don't have the manpower on the ground to do it. And the, the biggest problem with housing is it takes time. You can't rush these. They're, a dwelling takes about, if it's just a standalone house, about 16 weeks to build. Block of flats may take slightly longer, but obviously you get some economies of scale there. Um, mm -hmm. The emphasis needs to be 100% on um, high density housing. So making sure we have, we're going less for the traditional Australian family block and more for blocks of flats townhouses, anything that we can do to condense the amount of space that people take up when they live um, and offset that with more public spaces like parks and the like um, and mm -hmm. find other ways to provide relief for um, people than, than rent controls, which will just end up creating less rental stock for renters to go into. Um, and at the moment, there's a, a, well, there historically had been a rule of thumb where the weekly rent on a place was one month thousandths of the purchase price. So if you paid $1,000 a week in rent, it was a million dollar property, which in Sydney is probably a one better studio somewhere. Um, and those, though that, that equation's been out of equilibrium for some time in the renter's favor. So if a place sold for a million bucks, you probably need paying about 850 a week in rent. Um, which means that if you are seeing a sell-off of housing stock, it's entirely possible that the renters are not going to be the people who benefit because they won't be in a position to purchase those, the new properties that go into the the, um, the housing market. So long story mm. short, um, I think pushing for more homes is right. I think rent freeze is wrong and, and that's it. So I, I do disagree in the sense that... Um, as you pointed out, we've been having an issue with housing supply in this country for 20-odd years, and we haven't done really anything about it. Um, is it feel-good politics? Yeah, probably. But I think having that freeze for that period of time whilst housing is built, and I really take your point on high-density housing. I don't really know why we don't have more high-density housing in this country, if it's just the Australiana, you know, every man has his castle dream, um, or what, I'm not sure. But I, I think it's I very think much that, yes. I, I think there is a place for a rent freeze combined with massive public housing and social housing building. Um Anthony Albanese, 6,000 new homes a year. That's going to do diddly fucking squat. Um, oh, that's that's definitely not enough. Yeah, that's that 6,000 in Sydney alone wouldn't be enough for Sydney's needs, much less Melbourne, much less Brisbane, etc. I I was actually recently given some stats for my local area because I have a local hospital. Um, and it's estimated that every week there's about 110 children born there. Um, which at, at the time was phrased in the sense of um, there's currently a campaign where I live to get some more public schools because we don't have enough. And so 110 kids every week over a course of a month, that's like 440 kids. That's basically half a primary school each month. You know what I mean? Um, yep. Was their argument. But that is a lot more housing that'll need. Like, I'm, I'm not sure where all these people are going to go because I don't know how far we can spread out. And I think we need to start building up. We, we definitely need to start building up, right? And um, if you look at places where um, 
dense or where, where land is an issue they have done that they've gone very dense and so in some cases it's not necessarily desirable so hong kong's an example that springs to mind hong kong is full of high density urban housing some of it is incredibly small like you don't want to go to that extent but there are also places if you stand on the the ferry at central on hong kong island there's a perspective where you just look like it's a lake surrounded by giant flats it's, it's a really impressive site but singapore is another example where standalone dwellings are the absolute minority everything is blocks of flats and it's because both of them don't have room to go they do land reclamation into the sea because they've got such little room to go um, you have to build up you have to get people comfortable living in flats you know much more like a city like new york than what we've sort of seen which has been that the american expansion where everyone has to your point their own little castle their own little white picket fence um, we definitely need that and we need public transport to support it. We need public schools to support it. We need hospitals to support it. Um, and we need immigrants to build all of that because we don't have enough people to do it, which means we're creating more people on top of those kids who need housing. So we've, I think, for easily 25 years, maybe longer now, completely neglected the baseline of public infrastructure at the state and federal level. And that has to be turned around. It has to be done in, in quick order. My worry with, with the rent freeze is if you look at um, New York, San Francisco, um, Berlin, for example, and what happened there, could you end up in a situation where renters are even worse, you know, facing worse prospects of being able to find properties because it's either um, too many people competing for too many spots or just no property for them to go into. And if we're at that situation, that's not something we can pat ourselves at the back and say, look, we're sitting side by side with San Fran, New York and Berlin. It's a failure in, 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 in public policy, a massive failure that needs to be addressed pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, so the sense that I'm getting from all of this is that everything is awful. Uh, why did you wake up today? Uh... <laughs> Well, if you're in construction, you're probably quite optimistic about your prospects, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> all right, fair, fair point, fair point. Um, yeah, I, I don't know how it's going to go. Um, oh, hopefully, we do get some more actual like we we really need a housing campaign. Like, you know, like it, a government needs to look at this as a key issue and actually do something about it. 6,000 homes a year spread across Australia is not going to do literally anything for the housing costs. I think there's about 110,000 people on public housing waiting lists just in Victoria. Like, <laughs> I don't, for a prime minister whose entire, you know, back backstory is I grew up in public housing, look how great public housing is, um... I, th I think it's a bit of a massive failure on this point. It's it's not the best look for him, I have to admit, but you, you kind of need to look back to the post-war years, right, and the massive construction efforts there to kind of build Australia up as a result of um, a, a large pool of available labour coming in from, from mm -hmm. like, displaced persons from Europe. <clears throat> it's not quite the same underlying circumstances, but we need people... We need to build. We've got some really smart technologies now that are, are much more sustainable for building. So instead of using concrete, we're using treated wood to put up frames of, of tall buildings. I watched, was it Atlassian or Accenture, one of the two, their headquarters being built this way. Um, I used to work in Barangaroo in Sydney. It's a really interesting process. There's there's so many 
advancements happening in this area, we could have a little bit of a a kind of grand Keynesian stimulus of government, um, you know, incentives and spending to get how public housing going, government's um, incentives to get private housing going, um, build the housing we need to get people in there, create the jobs, create the pull-through stimulus. So every person that goes to a building site's going to need to buy um, lunch every day. So you've got people who can set up businesses to sell them lunch. There's so much economic activity that could come from a little, a, a properly targeted bit of stimulus here. It's a really easy win. You've just got to do it in a way that doesn't create inflation. I don't know if that's possible. Um, mm. Plus, so yeah, I again, think... couldn't, couldn't pay me enough to be Jim Chalmers right now. <laughs> Oh dear. Um, on that note, we might actually look at wrapping up for the day. Um, yep. Sorry, Jim Chalmers. No one wants your position. Good luck. Um, <laughs> thank you for joining me today, Ender, and thank you all for joining us. Um, I believe we will be hosting our campaign check-in for the Victorian election fairly soon, so stay tuned for that. Excellent. Thank you, right, Apricot. Bye. Thanks, everyone.